You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. There are um, certain days in our culture um, that, that have a way of bringing people together, and people anticipate those days, people prepare for those days, people orient their schedules and their time uh, around those days. And today is one of those days. It's Halloween. Uh, if your neighborhood is like my neighborhood, uh, Halloween decorations started going up in early August, like giant pumpkins in yards and spider webs coming off of houses and graveyards and skeletons, and there's colors and symbols and lights drawing everyone's attention to the day. It almost has this religious feel to it, doesn't it? Uh, and everyone knows the rituals. Uh, tonight, everyone will be out. Uh, people will be dressed up. There will be giving and receiving of candy. Uh, and of course, the best to receive is Reese's peanut butter cups. It's not debatable. Um, this day has shaped my neighborhood, and I'm guessing your neighborhood, for months now. And I started thinking, you know, there's something in human beings that wants to anticipate a special day and make preparations for it. After today's over, we'll start doing it for Thanksgiving, right? There's, we we want to anticipate a day. It's kind of how we're made, which makes it easy actually to understand the main thrust of 1 Thessalonians, because this whole letter to the Thessalonians is focused on a day, but it's not a cultural holiday. It's not a pagan holiday that comes year in and year out and then goes away. It's, it's focused on the day, the day of the Lord, the return of Jesus. And Paul says that day is our future hope, but he also says that day ought to shape our present reality because what we live for now is preparing us for that day. And so chapter five, this last chapter, has been looking at what it means to orient our lives around the day of the Lord. What does that look like practically? And last week we saw that it involves how we relate to leaders in the church. We're to respect them. We're to esteem them. And I gotta tell you, providentially, last week at church, someone brought me some jazz records. Someone brought me some fresh home roasted coffee beans and someone gave me a homemade oatmeal cookie and it was delicious. And I got to tell you, I felt esteemed last week. All right. So thank you for that application, immediate application of the text. But last week we saw also that orienting our lives around the day involves how we relate to one another, not just to the leaders, but to one another. And, and, and we're to admonish the idle, encourage the faint hearted, help the weak and be patient with everyone. And today, Paul tells us that orienting our lives around the day involves how we relate to God. It's interesting, he ends this letter by talking about the worship life of the church. Because if we're gonna orient our lives around the day of the Lord, it's gonna involve a corporate attentiveness to God. Corporate attention to God, and out of that corporate attention, we begin to be formed as individuals who are ready for the day. So how can our whole lives be aimed toward God so that we're totally ready when Jesus comes back? 
Well, in this passage, Paul gives us a whole church practice, and then he gives us a whole person prayer and promise, uh, which should really encourage us. We're going to spend more time on the whole church practice, uh, but then we'll, look, we'll end by looking at this whole person prayer and promise. Let's look at the practice that we see here. It, it is a public practice that's meant to shape our private lives. Uh, look at verse uh, 16 there in 1 Thessalonians 5. Verse 16. He says, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good and abstain from every form of evil. Now, when I read this, I automatically assume this is talking about my individual walk with God. We are all impacted by American individualism, so we have a tendency uh, to listen to the scriptures individually, not corporately. But most scholars think that Paul is talking about the corporate worship of the church here, even though you can apply these things individually. He doesn't explicitly say he's talking about corporate worship, but there are things embedded in the text that point to it. For example, all the verbs here are plural. He doesn't say you rejoice always. He says y'all rejoice always, right? He says y'all pray without ceasing, Secondly, when someone would bring a prophecy, like what you see in verse 20, and we're going to get to this in a little bit, uh, that would happen in public worship. We, 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 can, we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 when Paul is talking about order in the, in the gathered worship of the church. And he's like, when you come together, some of you have a hymn, some of you have a lesson, some of you have a tongue, some of you have a revelation or a prophecy, and he, and he tells them to do it with order. So it's public worship. Thirdly, he says to, in verse 26, greet one another with a holy kiss. You can't greet someone you're not with. There are no virtual holy kisses, right? This is public. This, the context is being together. Lastly, in verse 27, he, he says to read this letter to the whole congregation, meaning publicly, when everybody's together. So the context here for these verses is public worship. It's a whole church practice. Now, there are two aspects of a public worship service, and we've been doing both of them today. There are times when we're speaking, when we're expressing ourselves, we're singing, we're confessing, we're praying, we're professing, we're greeting one another. And then there are times when God is speaking. So we're listening in those moments, and that's, how, uh, that's the dynamics of a worship service. God speaks, we speak. God calls, we respond. Now, how does Paul say we're to speak? How are we to express ourselves in corporate worship? Look at verse 16 through 18 again. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So Paul bullet points three ways to express ourselves in worship. And these three themes should permeate our corporate worship so that they begin to permeate our private lives. 
First, he says, rejoice always, which is amazing when you think about what's happening in the Thessalonian church. They are a suffering church. They are experiencing major persecution for their faith in Jesus. And so when Paul says rejoice always, he's not saying put on a happy face when you come to church. (laughs) Welcome to church, here's a liturgy. Now turn that frown upside down. That's not what he's saying. John Stott says it's better to read this as rejoice in the Lord always, which is what Paul says in Philippians chapter four. Rejoice in the Lord always, meaning our joy is much deeper than circumstantial happiness. Our our joy doesn't depend on what's going on in in our lives. Our joy is in the Lord because he's both the source of our joy, because joy is a fruit of the spirit, but he's also the object of our joy, the focus of our joy. He's the one we praise. This command, I think, echoes the way the Psalms talk about worship. Psalm 95 says, "'O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation.'" What kind of noise should we make in worship? A joyful one. One that's worthy of the rock of our salvation. And this was radically countercultural in Paul's day. But because both hedonism or Epicureanism uh, uh, and, and Stoicism were common in Paul's day. Right? And hedonism said that, that joy and happiness in life came from being, experiencing pleasure in life. That's how you get joy. That's how you get happiness. Stoicism sort of said, I'm gonna ignore pleasure and pain and any kind of emotions like joy. But, but this is a call to actually be joyful, but to be joyful in the Lord, not in the pleasures of the world. So I read this and I think this is a tremendous challenge for me personally, because I really struggle with it. I struggle with my joy being dependent on how things are going in my life. I need joy training. And that's what happens in worship. Then he says, pray without ceasing. I read this this week and it reminded me when I was doing student ministry years ago, I had a guy tell me one time, a student at a prayer meeting, he told me, I never stopped praying. And I immediately did not believe him. Um, And I don't, maybe I was just being cynical, but I was like, no, you stop praying. There are times when you're not praying. I actually don't think what Paul is saying here is giving us a call to pray with every single waking moment of our lives. This is a call to persevere in prayer, like to keep at it. Jesus said in Luke 18 that we should always pray and not give up. In other words, keep seeking the Lord, right? Let prayer be a continual rhythm in your life. And the corporate worship of the church should teach us that. Prayer should be an ongoing part of our worship. And it already has been today. Have you noticed? We, we, we pray out loud together in confession. We pray out loud when we sing. We, we pray together when we intercede for others uh, in, the, in the prayer of the church. We ask him to attend his word. We pray before we come to the table. We're, we're to pray throughout. Keep praying. Don't give up is what Paul is saying. And then Paul says, give thanks in all circumstances. And notice he doesn't say give thanks for all circumstances because there is evil in the world that we don't thank God for because God hates that evil. He's not the author of it. But we can give thanks in all circumstances, right? Meaning no matter what happens, 
we can thank God because God is good regardless of our circumstances. He's our creator. He's our provider. He's our redeemer. And so thanksgiving should characterize Christian worship. Our worship service actually has a weekly practice of thanksgiving. Another name for communion is the Eucharist, which just means thanksgiving. And and so when we celebrate the Eucharist, it, it, it trains us in being thankful for the gospel. We get a chance to taste and see that the Lord is good and to thank him for it. We get a chance to remember that Jesus gave himself for us and we thank him for it. How are we to express ourselves in worship? Joyfully, prayerfully, thankfully. And verse 18 says, this is God's will for us in Christ Jesus. Why? because he is sanctifying a people for himself who will be ready for the day of the Lord. He's setting us apart. He's shaping us. He's molding us. And corporate worship helps us do that. Eugene Peterson once said that if somebody came to him and said, hey, teach me how to pray, he would tell him, well, be at church on Sunday. That's where you learn how to pray. (laughs) I love that. He said the corporate life of the church works to shape our private lives. So do you want to learn how to pray? Do you want to learn how to be joyful? Do you want to learn how to be thankful? Then it starts here. It starts here. Now, what about how we listen in worship? We've talked about how we express ourselves, uh, but it's not just us who are speaking. Uh, God speaks, obviously, when, when we worship, which means we listen. Look at verse 20. Verse 20. How do we listen? Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, what is going on here with the whole prophecy thing? Well, it was common in their day in worship for someone to bring a word from the Lord to the gathered worship of the church, and everyone else would listen Uh, to this word from the Lord, and they would weigh it. They they would consider it. They would listen with discernment. Uh, Again, you can read about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Uh, John Stott says, this command tells the church to listen to whatever message claims to be from God. He says, do not despise it, which, which means don't outright reject that message. But he also says, don't outright accept it either. Test it, listen to it and test it or weigh it with with discernment. So some examples of these kind of prophetic words in our day would be any kind of counsel, any kind of teaching, any kind of exhortation that claims to communicate the, the heart of God, the mind of God, the plans of God, the will of God. We we sometimes bring prophetic words like this to, to each other, don't we? Anytime we say something like, I think God is saying this, or I think God wants you to do this, or I think God is up to this. Those are prophetic words. They need to be tested. A sermon is a form of a prophetic word. It's not a direct word from God, right? It's an exposition of God's direct word. And so any counsel or teaching or preaching should be tested is what Paul is saying. Does this align with the teaching of scripture? Like, does this faithfully match what the Bible says about God, about people, 
about Jesus, about salvation. Does this edify the church? Test it. And Paul says in verse 21 and 22, as you test it, hold fast to what is good and abstain from what is evil or or reject whatever is harmful. Then Paul says something interesting in verse 27. Look at verse 27. He says, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers, this letter that we're reading right now. Have it read to all the brothers. Now, this is interesting because when the church would assemble and gathered worship, they would have a reading from the Old Testament. They would have a scripture reading just like we do every week. And now Paul is saying, yeah, and also read this letter. When you read the Old Testament, then read this letter. But he doesn't say it ought to be tested. Why? Because it's on par with, it is scripture. It's on par with the Old Testament, right? It's the word of the Lord. See, there's a difference between when the Bible is read up here and when the Bible is preached from up here. Whenever we're reading from the Bible, it's infallible. No test required. But whenever we're preaching from the Bible, it's fallible. And so weigh it, discern. But both of these require attentive listening, discerning listening to say, what is God saying here through his word to me? In all of our worship, Paul says in verse 19, do not quench the spirit. You see that little verse in verse 19? Do not quench the spirit. That command comes right in the middle of the others. So we're not to quench the spirit in how we express ourselves and we're not to quench the spirit in how we listen to God. It means don't extinguish the spirit's fire or the spirit's light. Don't don't stifle the spirit. Don't ignore the spirit. Don't disobey the spirit. Allow the spirit to speak to you by his word. And then allow the spirit to move through you to, 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 to pray, to rejoice, to give thanks. And I was thinking of ways that we might quench the spirit in worship. I think one of the ways is sometimes we might plug our ears and say, I am not going to listen to that part of the Bible because I don't like it. I'm not gonna listen to it. Another way is we might approach worship with a spirit of cynicism uh, or a spirit of apathy, boredom, or a spirit of condescension. Like I've heard this stuff before. And when we do that, that stifles joy. It stifles prayer. It stifles thanksgiving. I think another way we might quench the spirit is just to make a habit of missing worship altogether, just not going. You know, God's spirit promises to dwell in our midst when we worship and to speak to us by his word and to renew us by just ordinary means of grace. He guarantees that he will meet us here 52 times a year for like an hour and a half each time. That's 78 hours a year which is amazing when you think there's almost 8,800 hours in a year. So if we come twice a month, we're down to 39 hours. That's not even like a work week, right? And listen, don't quench the spirit by making these precious hours negotiable in your life. They're not negotiable. They're irreplaceable. There's nothing like them. God uses them to... to, sanctify us. The corporate worship of the church is a sanctifying 
practice. Listen, even when we don't feel it, right? It, it sets us apart as holy by focusing our whole attention on God. It's one of the primary ways that we prepare for the day of the Lord. It's a gift. It's a gift. But thankfully, our readiness for the day of the Lord does not rest on our faithfulness in worship and our faithfulness in any other area of life either. Our readiness for the day of the Lord rests on God's faithfulness. And so Paul ends the letter here with a whole person prayer and promise. At verse 23 is the prayer and verse 24 is the promise. Look at verse 23. He says, now... May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. May, may the God of peace, like the God who did everything to make peace with you, to reconcile you to himself, the, the, the God whose ultimate plan is to bring perfect peace, perfect shalom, universal flourishing to the whole earth, Universal peace, the God who has perfect peace and perfect wholeness within himself. That means God never has self-doubt. God never has angst. God never has insecurity. God never has duplicity, right? Paul says, may that God give you the same peace and wholeness. It says, may he sanctify you completely, which means to make you holy through and through so that no part of you is left not being like God. He says, may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes people get hung up on the anthropology of this verse. And they're like, is Paul saying that we have three parts? He's saying we have a spirit and a soul and a body, but some sometimes it seems like he says we have two parts, right? He says we have a spirit and a body. And Jesus sometimes says we have two parts, we have a soul and a body. But sometimes Jesus says, love the Lord your God with, your, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But that's four parts. <laughs> Which is it, Paul? And that totally misses the point of what Paul is saying here. Because what Paul, the key word in what Paul is saying here is the word whole. May your whole spirit, soul, and body, meaning may your whole person be kept blameless at the coming of Jesus, meaning all of you, your material part and your immaterial part that you can't see. May your whole person be blameless when Jesus comes. Blameless means no one can point a finger at you and point out any fault in you. No one can say this disqualifies you. No one can say, see, you failed, you came up short because you'll be blameless in your whole person. That sounds pretty awesome. And it also sounds pretty impossible, doesn't it? Because I know myself. And I'm like, how could that ever be true? How could this prayer actually become true? Well, here's the promise, verse 24. This is the promise. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. The, the God who called you into relationship with himself is faithful. He's totally reliable. He's totally trustworthy to finish what he started in you. He called you to Christ and he will perfect you in Christ's likeness. And I love this. It says he will surely do it. Not maybe, not possibly, not probably. He will surely do it. It's an amazing promise. 
Because I think we all struggle with doubt in our relationship with God. Don't you? I do. We, we struggle with our own sin. We struggle with our own faith, unfaithfulness. We just sang about it, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. We struggle with duplicity. We look in the mirror sometimes and we think, I don't even measure up to my own standards. How am I gonna measure up to God's? How could I ever be blameless? And God's answer is, I'll do it. I'll do it. The last verse in 1 Thessalonians, look at it, it's verse 28. It says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. We're saved by grace, we're perfected by grace, we're kept by grace. It's not our faithfulness that makes us ready for the day of the Lord, it's the faithfulness of our Savior. When we celebrate communion, we remember that the only truly blameless one took the blame for our sin, took the blame for the sins of the whole world, right? His whole person was crushed so that our whole person could be made holy. How do we orient our lives toward the day of the Lord? Well, not by looking at ourselves and what we bring to the table, but by remembering the grace of the Lord Jesus, because that's what he brings to the table. He brings grace to us and his grace transforms us. When we take this meal, we remember that night that Jesus was betrayed, how he took bread and, and after he had given thanks for it, after he had Eucharisted for it, uh, he, he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. In the same way, he took a cup of wine and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. My blood poured out for you, my blood shed for you. And we're told that as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, until the day. But for now, this is part of preparing us for the day. Let's thank him for this meal. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.